as we intro this uh, passage tonight, I want to tell a story about my wife. I have her permission to tell this story. Um, Last week, we were uh, sitting around, I think it was either Sunday or Monday night a week ago, and she began telling me how frustrated she was with herself. And uh, she was kind of recounting this this time when two days before she had gone to take a meal to some friends of ours who just had a baby. And she made this huge meal, and it was awesome. And she said that on the way over to our friend's house, she was having this pep talk with herself. And she was telling, kind of getting herself ready and saying, when I get over there and talk to them, I want to focus on them. I want to go ask our friends how they are and how you know, the hospital experience was and just kind of all the normal stuff you ask a new, uh, new parents. Just really trying to make them feel loved and cared for. And so the reason that she was kind of having to rehearse this and pep talk with herself is because she knows her own heart. She knows her heart well, and she knows that life right now at the Corbin house is crazy. We have an eight-week-old of our own, and we're just, like, not sleeping. It's just the, the potential to kind of go in and dominate a, a conversation about how things are is ever-present with us right now. And she was really not wanting to do that. So she walked in, and uh, the girl, uh, the wife of this family, the new mom, Uh, was sitting there, they were talking for about three minutes, and she looked up at Sarah and said, "Uh, you know, Sarah, I was just thinking about how crazy things must be at your house. I can't believe you had time to even think about making us this meal, much less make it. And Sarah said, well, I wouldn't have signed up if I didn't think I could do it. Which the translation is, uh, I'm pretty awesome, and this is just the latest manifestation of that. Like, I can handle things like this. <laughs> and Sarah walked out, and she, like, she was just so fresh. She was like, oh, why did I have to take that moment to like, make it about me and, and tell her how great I was and that you know, having three kids and, and making a meal is just no big deal? And she was frustrated with herself. And she wanted to take the opportunity to serve someone, even though she knew that she might be tempted to give in. She wanted to take the opportunity to serve someone, and there it was in the moment. And what did she do? She gave in. She caved to that desire for self-glory, for self-gratification through someone else's compliment. Tonight, we're going to look at the same passage that we looked at last week about being salt and light. But there's the end of this passage that we didn't even touch on. And I want to get through and I want to talk about this. Because I think it's super important. Because it kind of unpacks the question, uh, this question. It says, how is it possible for me or for you to do good things and to not seek all the glory and attention for it for ourselves. So how is it possible for us to have uh, good deeds, for us to do things out in the world, and yet not seek to just be self-glorified in that? Let's read uh, one more time from Matthew uh, 5, 13 through 16. We're really going to pay attention to 16, but I want to read the rest of it. Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. And he is speaking directly to his disciples. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way... Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me pray real quick before we look at it. 
Father, I pray that you would come and that you would uh, open our hearts. I pray that by your Spirit that you would illuminate this passage to our minds and our hearts, that this might be more than just a formality of something we do this week, but I pray that you would grab us. I pray that you would, that you would get us through what you're trying to tell us here. I pray for those who have come tonight and who are down, who are saddened by this world and what it is giving them right now. I pray that you would comfort them. I pray for those who come in guilty because of what they've done and they're just so ashamed of all of the things and the ways they failed you and others. I pray that you would encourage them with the good news that you love sinners. I pray for those of us who come in here uh, trying to make our own name great and trying to live for our own approval in the eyes of other people. I pray that you would give us grace to see that that is... That is a never-ending search. And wherever else we are, Lord, we ask for you to meet us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Last week, I was listening to uh, a talk that this guy gave to a a group of pastors. And the uh, title of this talk was, So You Want to Be a Ministry Rockstar. And uh, I don't know if you know this about pastors in general, but it's really the exception that a pastor doesn't just want to be awesome. And it doesn't want to be famous or be a conference speaker or something like that. That's definitely the exception of the rule. And it's just hard. It's, it's a hard battle to fight. You know, we all want people out there to preach to and to talk to and all this stuff. And so this guy was just addressing the reality of what that's like for pastors. And as I listened to this, it, it rocked me. I mean, it was really convicting. And then I sat there and thought about, this is actually, I think, the reality for a lot of Christians. Um, that we struggle to know what to do. Uh, in the midst of doing good things. And so tonight, I want us to ask uh, a couple questions to hopefully get to uh, the bottom of this, to hopefully get to the issue of how we, how we live in such a way that our love and our faith and our hope shines before others so that they don't at the end of the day look at us or look at me or you and say, man, that person is awesome. And how they take that switch and then begin to glorify God in heaven instead of you. And so the first thing, very simply, is what does it mean to give glory to God? I think that's one of those Christian phrases that we just kind of don't know what it means. Um, I am often tripped up by that. I say it, and I don't always know what, I, uh, what it means and what I ought to be doing with it. And then next is how do we live in a way that brings God the glory? Okay, so simply, what does it mean to give glory to God, and how do we live in a way that brings God glory? Um, So to bring God glory, uh, does it mean more than just, you know, like kneeling after a touchdown, sitting there for just a couple seconds, and then coming up and, you know, everybody's like tackling you and everything is awesome. Does it mean more than that or does it mean less than that? Does it mean more than in an interview, you know, when you're being acknowledged for something amazing saying, uh, you know, well, God, I just want to thank God and this kind of thing? Well, I think it means that. But I think it probably means uh, more than that, too. There might be more there. So on a simple level, I would say this, what it means to give glory to God. That it means that something that you or I do or say or whatever, that we do not let the praise or the approval or the recognition or the compliments or whatever find their ultimate end in me. 
that whenever someone acknowledges you've done something great or something like that, that we don't just take that and say, yeah, I did something great because I am great. Uh, I make meals for people when I have a seven-week old because I'm just awesome. Um, that somehow giving glory to God is taking that kind of thing and living in such a way that people know and that you're able to put that off and say, you know, it, thanks be to God. And how to do that in such a way that's not just cheesy and weird and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, pictorially, I think of it like this. That to give glory to God means that the spotlight at the end of the road is not just pointed straight on you to where you're sitting there just basking in the glory of it or the light of it. But rather the spotlight is shining on God. And that we seek to live in such a way to where that is true. Now there's something, there's something to be said about this. Because when we go out into the world, it's kind of tricky because God calls us, the Bible calls Christians to move out into the world and to serve people and to love people and do all these things, which to some level will be, uh, you will receive praise for these things. You will be acknowledged for doing these things. And so what happens when that happens? What happens when you receive that? When someone looks up and says, you know, the way that she served, there's something different about that. When she came and when she served and when she volunteered her time at this school or this aftercare program, there was just a way that she handled herself that kind of said that it wasn't about her. That maybe she was doing it for something more than just so she could put it on her resume or tell her sorority or her hall that she did this. Or the way that he led that group was a little different. That he wasn't just taking his position to be, uh, to be awesome and to kind of lord it over the other people. That he did that in a way to where he served them. We talked about that a bit last week. You can join the thousands on the podcast who listened. Um, that's a joke. Uh, and so uh, the kind of the penultimate story of this in Scripture is with uh, John the Baptist, who wasn't a Baptist. Um, he baptized people. Uh, just a clarification there. Um, I don't know why I felt the need to say that. That was stupid. But um, so John the Baptist, right, his whole job in life was he was preparing the way for Jesus. He, he was born right before Jesus was, and his whole life was spent basically pointing people to the Savior. So he would be like, if there were a big festival or party down on Cherry Street, John would show up and he'd be setting up the decorations. He'd be hanging the signs, putting those things on the street lamps. So that when the party arrived, people would know that there is the party. And y'all, Jesus was the party. He was it. He was this climax of history. And John said this. His famous line was, I must decrease so that he must increase. That the way that I live my life needs to be this downward trajectory so that people aren't just totally enamored with me. But it is through living that way and through this kind of downward motion that people see that God is glorified, that God is shown to be great and wonderful. So where does that sort of others first selfless mentality come from? I'm going to answer that in just a sec. Try to answer that in just a sec. But what does it mean to give glory to God? What does that phrase even mean? How can we give glory to God? First, what is the glory of God? What does that even mean? What makes God so amazing to where we would want to say, look at Him and not me? 
So what is the nature of God's glory? What would make you want to do that? Obviously, the illustration to give is one about Phil Mickelson. So uh, Phil Mickelson is one of the world's most famous golfers uh, because he's amazing. And he uh, is kind of known for being a personable guy. I mean, he has blown leads in the U.S. Open like six times. He's been a runner-up. I mean, it's just, it's just painful watching him do this. And every time he's going up the 18th hole and he's just smiling, he's like, Ah, this is okay. It's like, no, it's not. It's terrible. Don't act like that. Uh, it's kind of like Tim Tebow. You just kind of hate him. But um, anyway, uh, well, yeah, sorry. Sorry, I got personal for some of y'all. Uh, a friend of a friend a couple years ago uh, who lived in New Orleans, he was at the PGA Tournament as it stopped through New Orleans, and he, uh, he and his sons were out by the putting green at the beginning of that day. And the guy, the friend of the friend, Jeffrey, he looked at one of his sons and said, hey, he said, that's Phil Mickelson. Go get his autograph. And so his little boy ran over there to the ropes next to the putting green. He said, Mr. Mickelson, can I get your autograph? And he said, I'm not going to do it right now, but I tell you what. If you will follow me around for these 18 holes, you will not be disappointed at what I give you. This little boy is just like, oh, my gosh, yeah, we're in. And so the dad and the boys, they followed Phil Mickelson around for 18 holes. Uh, and the, the dad says that, it, it tried to get deterred. They tried to, um, it almost didn't work because at the ninth hole as he was pushing his youngest son around in a stroller, they hit a rock or something and the stroller dumped over and gashed his head open. But the son guy was like, no, dad, Phil Mickelson's talking to us after number 18. So it's was like, all right. So they kept going, you know, and they blazed on through. And it gets to the end of the round and Phil goes into the scorer's tent to finish up his, uh, you know, sign his scorecard and everything. And when he comes out, he looks out and finds Jeffrey and his kids, you know, on the other side of the rope. And Phil goes under the rope, and he walks right over to them, and he gets down on the level of those boys and says, Hey, what's your name? And the kid tells him his name. He's like, I, I really appreciate you coming down and following me today. That meant so much to me. What are your favorite things? You know, what do you like to do? And just he had this conversation with him. He came low and introduced himself and really, I mean, made this moment worthwhile for this kid. He took off his hat and took out a glove and signed him for him. And the dad tells the story. He's like, in that moment, Phil Milkison was a Greek god to me. He was just this amazing figure of, why would you, you don't have to do this, and yet you're doing it. Fast forward the next year. The same tournament comes down through New Orleans. And they, you better believe his kids wanted to go back out there and see Phil Mickelson. And so they show up, but they got there late in his round. In fact, they got there whenever Mickelson was on number 14. So just had about an hour and a half or so left. And when they see him, he's coming off the number 14 green, heading down to number 15 tee box, which is down a hill. And Phil sees them out in the crowd. This never happens. He sees them out in the crowd. He goes under the ropes. Literally, the guy says, the red, it's like the Red Sea parted. People just like, what are you doing? Where are you going? He walks right up to them. He gets down. He starts patting that boy on the shoulder and said, it means so much to me that you come out here again this year and watch me. And he said that the crowd erupted with something like he's never heard for the best drive Phil Mickelson's ever hit or anything. I mean, the people went crazy. Why did that, why was that such an ecstatic moment for everyone there? It's because of this. That our hearts know that the greatest form of glory is that which comes from on high and makes itself low. 
We intuitively know that. It's the purest form of glory and of amazingness that there is. It's the same thing that happens when a king goes out on the front lines of the battle and rides into combat. I've never understood that until I started thinking through this. That's why he does it. It is him lowering himself for the sake of his people so that they might know that he loves them and that he cares for them. And friends, that is exactly, that is exactly what God does. That is exactly who He is. That though He is the King of everything, He, with, he upholds the world with His words and with His hands. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me at all. He's wonderful. He's mighty. He's great. And He came and swam in amniotic fluid and was born and lived a life of poverty. He was scorned. He was mocked. And He died naked hanging on a cross. Because He loves you. Because He wants you to know that it is nothing for Him to leave His glory and to come down and make that known personally to you. And there is not a glory matched like that in the whole world. And you see, when, when we get that that is what God has done through Jesus, and when that really comes down deep into our heart, and that is becomes our story, not just a story out there, but if that becomes true of you and you can begin to experience God's love for you and how Jesus has bought you back into right relationship with God through His death on the cross, when that becomes true of you, then friends, this, this desire, this incessant desire to live for the worldly fame and approval and accomplishment, all this stuff, that begins to melt that begins to fall away. So what does it mean for others to see your good deeds and give glory to God? It means that your life begins to take the very form of the one who gave his life for you. That if you can get that that is the most beautiful picture of glory, then when you move out into the world, you don't have to seek to be the most awesome at everything. You can seek to make others around you awesome. You don't have to seek to be the leader of every single club or whatever so that people will look at you and say, man, that's a really well-run club. That's a really great organization. I bet she puts a lot of work into that. You can begin to lead it in such a way to where you're trying to orchestrate to where the people around you are getting the praise and glory. Yours is a, is a downward trajectory, trajectory, just like Jesus' was. From the beginning all the way to the end. We must decrease while others around us increase. It's others-centered. It's self-denying. It's others-promoting. And it's found in Jesus. Because He's done that for us. Okay, so some of you tonight are like I was in college. Actually, a lot of you tonight are like I was in college. Which means that you need to stop playing this game that you play. Because honestly, if, if you would be honest with yourself, you're kind of driving yourself crazy with just your inability to say no to people. Some of you are freshmen and you're, you're five weeks in and you're already looking at your schedule saying, I've overcommitted myself, but I don't know how to get out. Some of you are sophomores, juniors, seniors, and you've done the same thing. 
And you're here thinking, I'm just every night I've got four different things to do, and I'm going and I'm going and I'm going and I'm going. And, I'm going, and, I'm going, and, I'm going. and you're kidding yourself if you think that that's actually bringing you joy. Because you know that it's exhausting. You know there's no way off that treadmill. There is a way off. But what it means is that it's going to have to be disappointing to those around you. When you tell others, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I really can't say yes to that. Even your supposed acts of selflessness are selfish. Even the community service that you do is all for you. You know it. I know it. You just want to put it on your resume. You just want to tell someone about it. But you tell it in a way that you know, you're not really bragging. You're just kind of sliding it in. And you're thinking, Brent, but I need that internship. I need to have stuff on my resume. Everyone else around me is doing it. I have to play the game. Okay. What about the part of the gospel that says that the Lord of the universe loves you and it is nothing for Him to get you a job? It is nothing for Him to take care of you. In fact, He has promised that He will take care of you. Paul picks this up in Romans 8. He says, look, how will Him who didn't spare His own Son, how will He not also with Him graciously give you all things? But what what that calls us to do is to trust Him. And none of us like that. That is freaking hard. It's scary to think that I can actually say no and trust God that He's going to do something. That's scary. I get it. But will you trust Him? Will you trust Him that you don't have to seek your own glory in everything? And there is a way to live which gives the people around you glory, ultimately giving God the glory. Others of you are like my wife. And you genuinely want to change and you even find yourself with a playbook of how you're going to handle a situation. And yet you find yourself of giving in. And you're in that cycle of frustration. that You enter something with the best intention. I really just want to serve. I really just want to do this, this job well so the people around me can, can have fun and all these things. But at the end of the day, you just look and you do things in such a way that you want others to look at you and say, You are amazing. And you're in that cycle of failure time after time, again and again. Don't give up. Confess those failures to God and ask Him to restore you. Lean into the God who loves failures. God doesn't love the ideal you that's always doing it right. He loves the real you who is screwing up and who is messing up all the time. God loves that you. And He likes that you. So you're free to confess to Him and say, God, I I am screwing this up all the time. Help me. And He will. Okay, so how do I break out of these cycles? What does it look like to actually play this out in real life? Uh, The answer is Jesus. (laughs) Of course, you expected me to say that. Sunday school, right? But I'll be honest. um, That answer is both the the most freeing and the most terrifying thing I could tell you. The reason it's the most, that it's the most freeing thing I tell you is because what the gospel offers, what the Christian message offers is the ability to find your worth and your value not in your merits, not in what you do, but in what someone else has done. It's saying you can find out that the most important thing about you isn't what you do or don't do. 
whether that's good or whether it's failure. You can, you can pick up someone else's identity altogether because that's what happens. God offers you Jesus. Jesus goes out and He lived a perfect life. He won the awards. He did everything right. And what God is offering you is that to be your identity. He's saying, if you trust that that's what Jesus did, then I promise when I see you, I don't see your failures. I don't see your stupidity. I see Jesus and all of His goodness and all of His good works. So it is not just this self-loving or self-loathing. It's a self-forgetting. But I'm not just consumed about me. I'm utterly consumed with this one who gave himself for me. And that begins to, that becomes your identity. That becomes what is most important about you. And when you can move out of the world knowing that the God of the universe loves you and is crazy about you and thinks you're awesome, then that's the only way you're ever going to be able to not go out there and try to get that from other people. Because there is this fundamental God-shaped hole in your heart that is going to look for that kind of approval and that kind of acceptance. And if you don't have it from Him, friends, you are going to try to get it from other people. It is going to be forever frustrating because it's never-ending. So does knowing God... Uh, sorry, let me, let me back up a sec. It's freeing. Um, does knowing God actually free you? Paul says in Galatians 5.1 that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So simply, are you living as a free person or are you still trying to impress God and others with your good works or whatever? So it's freeing, but it's also terrifying. And here's why. To live for the glory of God in heaven instead of just living to get glory from the people around you um, means that we're going to have to do some of these things. And I'm just going to be very practical for, with about six things. It means that we have to begin to trust and believe and realize that God uses simple means. God uses simple means and simple things to do amazing things. Now, we hate that. We hate that. We don't want, none of us in here, we're at TU after all, none of you want to be ordinary. You've had people your whole life tell you, you can change the world. You're a world changer. You can do all these things. You can do anything you want. Which comes with a fair bit of pressure. It makes me think that I want to be anything but ordinary. That this kind of this life of just doing what God has called me to do and kind of being faithful with my schoolwork, trying to be a good friend to those around me, seeking to follow Jesus, praying for people, which feels very ordinary, doesn't feel like something God's going to use. We think that God's going to only use the big splash things, the conferences and the huge, massive you know, movements to do stuff. I don't know. Jesus said that he came to die for the church. You know that boring old church that just kind of sits there? Jesus loved her enough to die for her. He uses simple means. Paul said that Jews seek signs and Greek look after wisdom. Look, everybody has been wanting something more sexy than just the normal Christian life. From the beginning, the Jews sought signs. They wanted Jesus to do all these things. Greek wanted wisdom. They wanted it to all make sense. But the Christian's fastball is a naked Jew hanging on a cross. It's like, well, that's all we got. And God has been using that message to change the world for 2,000 years. 
Are you willing to buy into the idea that God uses simple things to do amazing things? Second thing is that we shouldn't run from rejection and death. Sorry, I forgot I had these on the screen. Um, We shouldn't run from rejection and death, but realize that God uses these things to bring about life and beauty. Look, um, when things go badly around us, we flee. Like, if you have a friend that's really needy, you kind of are there for a little while, but at the end of the day, you have to acknowledge that it's really frustrating that they're so needy. And we kind of don't really want to be around the dorm room when they're there. Because we hate, we hate struggle. We want to kind of skip from success to success to success, or from awesome thing to awesome thing. But in the kingdom of God, and the way that God works... Life comes out of rejection and death. Think about it. It's the cross. It's the resurrection. It's the way that God has always carried forth this good news. And so why do we think that that doesn't need to be a part of our life? Why do we hate rejection so much instead of leaning into it and wondering what God might be teaching me? Next thing. Uh, We ought to surround ourselves with Jericho wall experiences. And this is what I mean. In the Old Testament, there's this story uh, where God called the people of Israel to go and to march around the most heavily fortified city in the world. Jericho was just this, I mean, it's like Fort Knox of the day. You couldn't get in. And he said, I got an idea. Why don't you go march around it for seven days and on the seventh day go around it seven times and go blow your kazoos and trumpets. So here we go. The guards are up on the wall. They're looking down at this people and they're like, like, what in the, who are these people? This is stupid. And on the seventh day, they go out again. They go blow their trumpets. And the walls come down. God uses whatever He wants to bring about His purposes. And that may mean He's calling you to do something that may look stupid. That may mean that when, if you're praying to Him, you get this idea of something He wants you to do that may look and feel ridiculous. And you already know that people are going to make fun of you for it. Maybe He's calling you to do that. He uses ridiculous things. Because he says, bring me your weakness and I'll show my strength. Bring me your trumpets. Bring me your kazoos. I'll change the world. Second to last, don't believe the press about yourself. When you start to receive praise and acclaim and all this stuff, one of the most unhelpful things we can do is just start to buy into that. Like, yeah, I'm awesome. I am awesome. I am a really good preacher. I am a really good whatever. In fact... Don't just not believe it. Start a tabloid which tells people about the real you. Try to find people around you who you actually let know about your struggles and where you fail, where you give in. And lastly, spend time with people who can't help you build your fame or status. Spend time around people who really, they got nothing to give you. They're just ordinary people. Maybe they're outcasts. Maybe they're marginalized. Maybe they're unloved. These kind of things will keep us from just going out and seeking our own glory. These things will help us to model what Christ did, and they will be so freeing to you. And I realize this is a hard sell for you because you're in college at TU. 
But I wonder if you would be willing to buy into that idea at the heart of Christianity which says that the way up is the way down. That the way to eternity feels a lot like death. And it's always been that way because Jesus, He died. His life was one of a downward trajectory. Are you willing to buy into a vision of glory so big as that that would allow you to come alongside Him in it? Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would make this real to us. I pray that um, we wouldn't just live for ourselves, but that we would live for others. I pray that we would seek to be self-abasing so that You and others might be glorified. And so when they see the way that we live, that they would give glory to You. And God, I pray that if there's anyone in here who who that picture of glory, the glory that has come low for them, I pray if that is not theirs, that you would make it theirs and you would burn in their hearts. That they would accept it. That they would realize that they are loved and accepted in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.